Good morning, and it's time for another edition of Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and it's going to be a overcast but decent WIP day. Lots of trees are down, however, lots of wires are down. So if you're out and about, take extra time, take extra care. Things are a little complicated. And when we come back in just a little bit, if I played music, I'd play that song, Divorce, D-I-V-O-R-C-E, because that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about surviving divorce financially. Whether you're a woman wondering about how are you going to do it when the money that he brings in is gone, or if you're a man, how can I do it without losing everything? All this and more coming up here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. The WIP Times 602. And we're back at his conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. And I'm pleased to welcome here for conversation, Sally Boyle, financial expert extraordinaire. She's got a lot to say about a lot of things, particularly about divorce. Good morning, Sally Boyle. Good morning. All right. Sally, before we get specific about divorce, what is a financial expert? I mean, can anybody just hang out a piece of paper on their front door and say, financial expert? Um, and when it relates to divorce, it's typically um, someone who is a certified divorce financial analyst, which means it's a, uh, it can be a, a financial advisor who has gone through additional certification um, in education around uh, the law that uh, affects finances in divorce. So a CDFA or a certified divorce financial analyst has gone an extra step uh, to become educated in this particular area. Okay. Um, how did you become a financial um, divorce expert? I um, uh, had a lot of people who were coming to me um, after their settlement. So they had gone through their divorces. They felt that they needed some advice with regard to monies that might have come to them in the settlement. And um, what I noticed was they were making a lot of mistakes um, and that they, their settlements were not really probably the most efficient ones for them. And I did the same. I mean, I was divorced 18 years ago. I was a financial advisor at that time. But I think the emotions and the chaos around divorce affects even people who feel like they're fairly competent, you know, financially. So when I saw this, I thought, wouldn't it be nice if there was a resource that people could go to um, an easy read, a simple read that um, would give them just the fundamentals of what they should be considering during the divorce process so that when they went into whomever, uh, an attorney, um, that they might uh, be working with on their divorce, they'd have a better idea of all of the, um, uh, all of the uh, iterations that could happen. And so um, de- Deconstructing Divorce was the book that I wrote, and it has, um, you know, it covers both the financial implications of divorce, the legal considerations for divorce, and it touches on uh, how folks might be feeling emotionally when they're trying to deal with all of these issues. Is it different for men than it is for women, or are you primarily focusing on women? Well, I really think it does depend on the age group. Um, You know, I think... um, For those couples that I work with who are in their 50s and 60s, a lot of those folks might have had a more what we would call traditional um, lifestyle in the sense that 
maybe the woman has been the one who has stepped back from her career if she worked and um, took care of the children. And maybe um, her spouse uh, or her husband has been the one who has continued to work and generate the income uh, for, for the family. And in those circumstances, yes, it is different for men and women because um, men probably experience um, an impact to their uh, finances in the sense that those things that they've accumulated maybe in retirement accounts or will need to be divided. Um, and it's different for women in the sense that they lose the income uh, that they had become, uh, you know, used to over the years because um, they, if they divorce, then their spouse's income stays with them. For the younger people, we're seeing fewer divorces, first of all. The, the bulk of divorces today are what we call gray divorces, which are um, folks in their 50s to 70s. Younger people are divorcing less often, um, and I think if women have not stepped back from working in that age group, um, it more be it might have less impact on young women that it is than it is having on women who who are older. Why do you think there's less divorces with the young folk? Um, you know, it's really interesting. I don't know that there's any empirical evidence about this, but I think they're marrying later. Um, you know, a lot of young people are marrying in their uh, late 20s, early 30s. Um, I think a lot of them have some world experience as a result of that. You know, I think they are probably more, um, they've spent time at their careers, uh, they've accumulated some of their own individual assets, um, and I would not be surprised as they've uh, lived in families where divorce was an issue. Their parents were divorced. Maybe they're just more careful in, um, in their marriage. Maybe they're more mature. Um, I, I would think all of those probably feed into it, their personal experiences. Okay. Um, did men ever come to you for their advice? They do. They do. Um, I do have men who come in quite often. When they come in, they may be coming in with their spouses. Um, I work with couples a lot. I don't always work with either um, one or the other. Um, in many age groups, you know, two-thirds of divorce are initiated by women these days. Um, one out, you know, one out of three might be initiated by a man. So the bulk of divorces are being initiated by women. <clears throat> that may be why I see more women, or if I see men, I see them come in with their spouses um, because oftentimes they'd like to work um, in a more civilized way. And so um, I find that uh, when I'm working with men, most often it is probably as a couple. Now, the reason I ask is I wonder if you ever have a man come in saying, she left me with a dollar sixty. Now, how am I supposed to survive? I don't have that happen. That has not been my experience often. Um, I have had um, several couples where um, the woman was the primary breadwinner. Um, she uh, was the one who divided her assets that had probably come from her. Um, we have actually had alimony discussions also where um, the wife would be paying the husband, um, but that's probably only been maybe one in ten circumstances. The majority of times, you know, uh, that's not the case. Again, I think it's because of the age of my clients. Okay, now, 
You're up there in New Hampshire, I think it is, correct? I am, yes. Um, it really varies from state to state what the laws are, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, you have two primary. Um, you're either in what's called a community property state or you're in a state that is um, uh, uh, equitable distribution. And the rules are very different in that there's 10 community property states. And community property says that anything that was accumulated during the marriage is automatically divided between both husband and wife. Um, If there were assets before the marriage, then those may have separate considerations, but certainly those things that were um, saved or generated uh, during the marriage will automatically be divided 50-50. In an equitable distribution state, the officials, if it's a judge, um, will have a little bit more discretion in terms of Um, how assets are divided, and it isn't automatically 50-50. So the remaining states, the remaining 40 states are equitable distribution states, and there is some discretion on the part of the judges if the divorce makes it to court. Okay. Um, Let's ask some questions then of practicality about how this happens. They've been married for 35 years. He's got 35 years of a pension accumulated, Um, 10 years of it before the marriage. How does that get divided? Well, it's there's something called a coverture fracture, which um, will divide that pension based on the time that uh, of the marriage as uh, a percentage of the total time that that um, individual worked. Um, so, as an example, if um, there was some time that um, he or she worked before the marriage. Um, and there's some expected time that they will work after the marriage. Only those years during the marriage count in the division of the pension. So maybe uh, the marriage was only 20 of 30 total years, uh, working years. Then um, that spouse uh, at the time of divorce is only entitled to two-thirds of uh, that pension. Okay. Um both parties in the marriage have parents, family members. They die. They leave them money. How does that get figured in? Well, typically, I mean, that's one of the mistakes that people make is, okay, we've divorced and we have separated our assets. And quite often they don't revisit their estate planning, which is, you know, estate planning is how do I tell people Uh, what I want to see happen with my money when I die. And so, um, but after the divorce, if I will own my own respective assets, you, my former spouse, will own yours, and I have the same rights that anybody else has. I then change my will or I change my trust um, so that only those people that I want to get uh, what I receive from my divorce will get it. So <clears throat> you end up um, really um, owning your own assets, revisiting your estate planning, and then you choose where things go at your death. No, okay, yes. But I was talking more about grandma and grandpa die, leave mm. money to one of the spouses. Who does that belong yes. to in a divorce? Right. So, again, um, those are one of those um, circumstances where one could argue that it, they should not be included in marital assets. 
And if um, at death um, of my grandmother, if she died before I was married, I could argue that those are not marital assets and should be separated from the um, from the marital uh, uh, property. Um, and quite often the courts will agree with that. In a community property state, that is uh, can be established easily, um, and that this was not part of the marital property because I re- received it as an inheritance. Um, in equitable distribution states, it might be up to the discretion of the, uh, of the judge if, if it makes it to litigation. Um, but quite often an argument can be made that that's not an, a marital asset and should be separated from, from marital assets under divorce consideration. <laughs> okay. You're listening to 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning Sally Boyle, financial planner specifically specializing in helping folks who are divorcing manage the money, the money that's left after the chaos. Um, maybe that's prejudice on my part, calling it chaos, but that's what it seems like. Um, her new book, Deconstructing Divorce. Sally, stay with me. I've got to run a few commercials. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 6-12. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Sally Boyle, financial planner specializing in helping folks who are divorcing figure it all out financially. And she's here with us about her new book, Deconstructing Divorce. She's got a lot of answers, so ask your questions. We're taking calls. And we actually have a caller this morning. Let's say good morning to Tom. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. First time caller. I love your show very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for your service. I have a a very difficult question. I I have been trying to find an answer to this for some time now. Uh, I'm a 100% service-connected injured veteran who received a a VA pension and SSD from the federal government. I live in New Jersey. My wife and I are separated for many years. We were married in New Jersey. And she gets conflicting information from attorneys, and I get conflicting information. Uh, the VA, from what I understand, gives what's called a marital apportionment, meaning that only a very specific amount of money is to be given for the spouse because it's for the veteran who serves. Because we were not even known, we didn't know each other. I was in the military in the 70s and 80s, and we didn't get married in 2000, 2007. So she was not in my life or anything as such. And she received some other types of income from her previous husband was a pension quattro payment and some Social Security. She believes that she should be getting like 30% of my VA income. And I cannot get any kind of clear answer on this issue at all. Well, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, uh, I'm not an expert on uh, VA benefits, so let let me say that uh, at the outset. Um, in and where do you live? You live in New Jersey, so you yes, are I live in, in Jersey. Gotcha. You're in an equitable distribution state. It, you know, unless there's an exception to VA rules, um, it would be um, my experience that given your pension was outside the time that you were married. Um, that that um, pension would not be subject to um, a, a, a sharing arrangement as a result of a divorce. Because I was hurt in the military in the 70s and 80s. I did not start getting my pension, however, for the injuries until 2010 while we were married. But we were not, when the injuries occurred, we were not even, we didn't even know each other existed on the planet. Right. 
You right. Know? So yeah. And that's what again. Um, I'm I'm not an expert um, okay. because this is a hard. This is a very difficult area to find answers on, it. and I've been doing some homework. Um, right. And I'm not. And an, so, I'm not the only veteran out there with this issue. I'm sure. No, no, I'm sure you're not either. And and I would I would say that in most cases, I don't think veteran issues are treated differently than any other pension. And okay. um, and based on the division of rules, as, as, as I know it, in terms of pensions, um, if that pension was not earned during the time that you were married, then it would not be subject to uh, a division. Okay. What about Social Security? Because um, that was for my entire work life, and we worked together for – I don't work anymore. I haven't for 10 years. Um, would a portion of SSD be attachable, do you know? Well, she is. Um, she does have a right to her um, to her spousal benefit, um, and she would probably. You said that she was married before, and she, she has, has been. Yeah. right. She has uh, several spousal benefits as well as her own to uh, to access. She can't access all of them, and of course, um, any of her spousal benefits would uh, be partially her own. Um, but um, if you were married for 10 years, divorced for two, uh, the women, um, the men um, have uh, the same spousal benefits as anyone else. Um, okay. And, you know, the same person can have who's been married five times, those five people can access spousal benefits of that individual. Because gotcha. we both um, have and, multiple marriages, yes. Yes, yeah. And so people usually do, they review all of their benefits. What, what, is, what, are, what are my spousal benefits, which are 50% of my former husbands or former wives? What's my own benefit? Um, and they usually make a decision which one is greater. Okay. Um, they may take one at full retirement age. They may take their spousal benefit at full retirement age and allow theirs to continue to accrue credits until age 70 and then take mm. their own at age 70. And the fact that they have a spousal benefit doesn't impact your benefit at all. Okay. You, the biggest thing you cleared up for me was the, how you explained the VA benefit as a, as a function of not being detachable to the marriage because – uh, the injuries that occurred were not occurred during the period of marriage, right? So therefore, right. there's no that was the big that was the biggest question um, because she we had a house but I, it was always kept in her name. We separated and she sold the home and kept benefits from this home sale. Oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah, interesting was right. And someone said told me that I really need to like uh, clear that one up because I have a percentage of that that should be coming to me. Right. I, and, I would uh, expect. Because the homes typically, if, if you did share a home and you paid for the home expenses out of a joint account, and yes, that we did. typically, yeah, that typically is a marital asset, and the proceeds um, belong to both parties of the marriage. Yes, you you've just given me uh, just a few minutes of clearing of information that has been taking years, and I truly appreciate that. Tom, oh, my pleasure. Tom, before right, you thank go, you, Peter. Tom, before you go, yeah. Um, Sounds like you two are also mad at each other, are you? Uh, we still communicate, Peter. Uh, uh, we live separately, obviously. Um, sometimes it's not the best uh, uh, communication, you know, skills. Other times it's, it's amicable at best. Um, but, you know, it only takes a, a match stick to go off to create a firestorm. 
you know, and, and, and it's really, uh, she's become very vindictive. And uh, I, I give, I, I give, I volunteer out of my own, I give her more money out of than, than I have every month just to make sure she can live comfortably. And it would never happen. I know that now listening to what's going on, uh, she would never receive any kind of type of income I give her just to appease the situation. And it's coming to the point where I don't want, my life is being detrimentally affected now. And, um, uh, you know, but it's hard to get information, Peter, about veterans' benefits, and um, it's a quagmire. And uh, your your guest did a great job in clearing some issues up for me, so I appreciate you. That. Glad to hear that. I'm glad you were able to get the help you need. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Peter. You're welcome. And, and you're listening to 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Be a part of the discussion. Give us a call. Get your questions answered. Make your point. You know the number, so let's talk. All right. Um, I think I need to do another set of commercials, Sally, so you stay with me. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 629. And we're back here on Conversation 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, financial planning expert Sally Boyle. Her specialty, working with people who are divorced or divorcing and how to figure out the whole financial mess. Be a part of the discussion. Give us a call. You know the number. Sally, that's caller Mike. I'm Tom. It's raised an issue for me. It's got to be incredibly hard for you to deal with people who come in mad with the attitude, Uh, I want it all. (laughs) Well, you know, and that's one of the beauties of understanding that um, there are rules around divorce. I think when people start to divorce, they think it's the wild, wild west. But um, the reality is there are rules. So if they come in to me and they're... um, saying, I want it all, that's usually where I start, which is um, that's not the way the world works in divorce. (laughs) In divorce, there is fair distribution, uh, particularly the assets that are, um, you know, accumulated during the marriage. And um, I start to point them to their family law websites in their individual jurisdiction and states and uh, help them uh, understand that, that there are rules and the rules will be fair. And um, it really helps to, um, I guess, um, disengage the anger somewhat. Once they realize there's not something that dramatic to fight for, all of a sudden um, couples will settle down and say, okay, uh, what do we do then? What do they that do? doesn't mean that they won't get angry later, <laughs> and that doesn't mean that we don't have emotionally charged conversations. We really, really do. Um, but I think you um, start with the premise that, you know, the best divorce is one that is civilized uh, because you don't end up in court, which is usually the thing that I try to avoid is a litigated divorce. And if I don't end up in court... Um, then, uh, you know, I'm probably not paying attorneys uh, exorbitant amounts of money uh, over a period of a couple of years simply because I don't understand the rules. Okay, not ending up in court, negotiating it through. I think a lot of men, though, perceive divorce as a process that's in, where the woman is favored and judges are going to give her everything she asks for. You know, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that that's probably left over from uh, perceptions that were created over the years when um, that was the premise. Um, I I think, you know, years ago when 
um, it was recognized that men were the primary breadwinners and that uh, women uh, were to stay at home and, and to take care of the children. Um, and that was just the traditional marriage, which is not the case today. But um, for years, that was the case. And so at the, the time of divorce, you know, I don't know that the assets were divided differently. Um, generally, you know, it still was a somewhat equivalent division. Um, but um, in a more traditional marriage at that time, and I want to say that that's probably a good 20 or 30 years ago, um, women could get spousal support for long periods of time, maybe until they qualified for Social Security, um, because it was understood that that woman didn't work at all. She did take care of the children, and the courts recognized uh, that and asked men to uh, support women. Otherwise, they would have been um, in poverty and financially devastated. But um, today, when we have uh, women with careers, uh, women who work, the courts um, see spousal support um, as more rehabilitative, um, you know, uh, a more temporary benefit that allows a woman to to get back into the workforce, to get back into um, uh, to maybe reeducate herself, to requalify herself, to go back to work. And so um, it's not the same today. Um, and I think women are sometimes surprised by that. I think if they've taken a step back from their careers, they expect that the courts will be a little bit more friendly to them. And that, in fact, is not the case these days. Um, they will find themselves in more limited support situations. Now, you mentioned children. How do children affect this whole process? Well, of course, um, that is an extraordinarily sensitive issue um, because we have to start talking about where are the children going to be and when. How much time are they going to spend with you? How much time are they going to spend with me? And um, so we, we have very formal what we call custodial agreements that define that. Who, who is the, who's the legal guardian? Who's the physical guardian? And, and you know, that impacts how a parent um, interacts with their children legally, who has the right to say um, what is going to happen with any individual child, um, and what's going to happen with them physically. Where are they going to live? Who are they going to live with and what percentage of the time? And that can be a very hard conversation. And it also somewhat drives the finances behind um, income. Um, so in other words, if a child is spending the majority of their time with one parent called the custodial parent, it could be that the other parent may have to support that parent a little bit more because the, the assumption is that most of the expenses are going to be provided by uh, the custodial parent. So, um, you know, child support becomes a conversation when, you know, the income is not equal between the parents. Maybe we have two working parents, but maybe, again, one parent is the primary custodial parent and their income reflects that. And so um, in New Hampshire, as an example, there's a formal um, child support guideline um, and worksheets that people can sit down and 
see how the state looks at the division of income for the purposes of child support. And child support is paid until emancipation, which in most states is age 18. Um, and so it, it, it can be a long-term commitment. All right. Um, but how about those situations where before the divorce, the child went to an expensive private school and after the divorce, I don't want to pay that tuition. And that, that can be an argument that can be made. Um, you know, parents can say, well, now, you know, we're supporting two homes, you know, not just one. We're not in the same. And those kinds of things impact um, parents' ability to provide um, things like, you know, private school tuition. And if, um, if a individual party can demonstrate that it's no longer affordable to them, um, and then uh, they can agree between both parties and not go to court. If they make a decision that it's going to be something that they're going to argue over, uh, the judges will make a decision if it's a reasonable expectation to continue um, that expense or any expense after divorce. So there really is a lot of listening and discussing and understanding on the part of judges. There is. Um, if you end up in litigation, if you end up giving uh, your right to make the decisions about yourselves um, to a judge, then you, that individual will um, determine um, exactly what's going to happen in your family. Um, and, you know, then you are somewhat subject to the individual biases of that judge. I mean, they work within the context of the rules of the jurisdiction, obviously. They can't go outside of those. Um, but there is some discretion on their part, yes. And so I don't necessarily feel that that's the ideal set of circumstances because it puts you in a very dark area of unknown. I really don't know what this individual person is going to say. Um, but yeah, there is some discretion on the parts of judges, particularly when it comes to um, income and the sharing of income and um, uh, custodial arrangements and, and uh, spousal and uh, child support. Yeah. Attorneys must not like you, Sally Boyle, in that you work hard to keep people out of court, and keeping people out of court means not a whole lot of billable hours. That's exactly right, and I really don't mind that at all, because uh, I paid a lot to my attorneys because we did end up in court. Um, and I've actually made recommendations to attorneys. They know it's coming from me. Um, I'm hoping that they will have a conversation with my client about mediation or collaborative divorce that keeps my client out of court. And I actually just recently had an experience where an attorney that I respect um, had a um, a litigation conversation with my client, or I, what I want to say is fear-based. They start you know, poking the fear um, uh, nodules in, in a brain, you know, you, you need to be afraid and you need me because um, things are, can, are so unknown in the divorce system. And um, she didn't hire him because of that. And um, because I don't believe that litigation is the way to solve your family's problems. I, I know uh, conversations are difficult. I really understand that we 
um, have very difficult decisions to make in divorce at a time where we're not feeling ourselves. Um, but handing that decision over to an attorney, those decisions over to an attorney and a judge, in my humble opinion, um, is not the best way to approach it. And if attorneys don't like me for that, I'm, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. How do you want people to use the book, Deconstructing Divorce? Well, I want them to um, use it um, to guide them first, um, to say, okay, when I'm looking at do I keep our family home or do I sell it, what are the implications of both? And I think the book does a pretty good job of of helping people think about um, things in a variety of different ways. Um, The other thing is I'm hoping that it helps them learn what what you're trying to do here, Peter, on on the air, which is, okay, let me understand the rules around divorce. Well, how do I get guidance around that? Well, geez, I can go to my family law website and understand, am I an equitable distribution state or am I a community property state? And uh, begin to say, okay, this is where I live and these are what the rules are. Because I think the more we know the rules, the less people can make us afraid. Um, and I think fear um, is uh, used quite often in divorce. And I, and I don't think, um, I feel like information, education is empowering so that we can be less afraid and take more control of our circumstances. So I think the book is intended just to point people in the right direction, certainly not to answer their questions in detail. And in that case, you quite often... You do need some guidance from a mediator, from an attorney. But I think if you understand what your options are, then you go out and you seek that attorney who, or that mediator who is specialized to your circumstances because you know your options. You're not going out to find the attorney that your best friend told you got the best settlements by fighting the hardest in court. You say, oh, wait, mediation is, is, is a possibility. It looks like... That would be a good process for us. Let me find a well-qualified mediator experienced in my particular circumstances. So I'm hoping it gives people guidance as to where to look, um, who to look for, and, and what processes feel most comfortable for them. Wouldn't it be a nice idea if people had a mandatory waiting period before they could divorce to calm down and get it together? You know, that, that's so interesting, Peter, because that, that's one thing in New Hampshire is, is for divorcing parents, we make these parents sit down and talk about the impact on children. It's called a child impact um, uh, session. And I always think to myself, now, wouldn't that be smart if we required people to do that before they got married? You know what I mean? If we, if we asked them uh, to, to actually sit down and understand what they're doing. Um, I really do believe that um, sometimes legal separations um, or physical separations give people the opportunity to step back, take a breath, and really um, become less emotional. Those, those first few months after you make a decision to divorce are highly charged months months emotionally. There's some anger there. There's some fear. There's a lot of blaming going on and shaming going on. It's a very similar cycle to any cycle of loss. And so if you recognize that, I feel as if you 
should maybe impose a self-imposed waiting period to allow yourselves to take a breath, settle down, recognize what's going on with you emotionally, because you are going to enter into probably one of the largest financial transactions of your life. And so doing that um, when you're calm, to me, makes most sense. Calmer. I don't know that you're ever actually calm during divorce, but calmer. Because certainly didn't make a financial decision like that or like those. When you're not calm, can be disaster. And I've seen that. I've honestly seen that. I've seen that when people, um, you know, rush through a divorce. I'm just re- working with a woman right now who <clears throat> felt a little bit guilty, gave some money back, and um, not a bad thing. You know, it's not a bad thing, but now she's finding herself without enough cash to do some of the things that um, she had agreed to do. And she it was a completely emotional decision made out of a feeling of, uh, of guilt. And, yeah, I think we have to be careful. I think we do have to be careful. Well, it seems to me part of the problem, though, is we sell people this whole happily ever after thing. And when they don't get it, it gets complicated. Right. I think the disappointment of divorce, I think when you do finally settle in and you realize the financial um, implications. We, I might not be able to live the lifestyle that I've lived as a married person. I think all of those dif- disappointments feed into the emotions that we feel. And um, that's why I always feel like a good um, counselor, a good family therapist is also important during the process. In fact, in collaborative divorce, which is a more formal uh, structure of divorce, you have a therapist who helps everyone stay on track in terms of the conversation. They're a facilitator. And they serve a very important function, especially in highly charged um, emotional divorces. Do you ever, though, have a situation where you have a woman in your office and she tells you, well, my sister or my mother or my girlfriends are telling me, get it all, get blood, get them. <laughs> and, and I do, I do have that. And it usually comes down to the specific situations. And sometimes I'm working with um, a really particular uh, you know, a, a very uh, specific dollar amount. And what I try to do is I, I point out to people what two years of litigation is going to cost them. And, you know, for so much of this money that you're fighting for, if there's enormous amounts of money, I mean, I think those complex situations do require a, a skilled uh, legal professional, and they will take some time. There's no question about it. But in the majority of situations that I see out there where, you know, people with modest incomes and, and you know, a fair accumulation of assets, but I, I point out to them that, you know, that might be, you know, a, a fair percentage of the money of the money that you're hoping to get. And the question is, you know, we've got children together. You've got weddings. You've got baptisms. You've got all kinds of things ahead of you. Do you really want this experience um, to paint your relationship going forward? Let's look forward past um, the, the final settlement date and ask ourselves what sort of relationship do we want to have with our soon-to-be former spouse 
for the next 30 years? And do you really want to assault this poor person in court? Um, I don't, my personal opinion with them is always, I, I really just don't think so. And by the way, you're going to spend the money on the attorneys, not on your children. Is that what you want to do? What then is the biggest mistake people make? Um, sometimes I think it's um, being emotionally attached to <clears throat> to a particular thing that you own. And quite often what I see is it's the family residence. And there are times that we hold on to family residences when it's not really in our best financial interest. Um, and that's why I think sometimes a good qualified uh, divorce financial analyst can show that to you, that this holding on to this particular asset is not in your best interest. When we're thinking about, okay, now the children are gone, now we're going into retirement now, you know what I mean? I think uh, there are some things that we shouldn't keep. Um, and or there's, you know, certain assets that we shouldn't keep. Um, and, I, and I look at family residences as some of those. Let's make a less emotional decision regarding them because it's easier for me to stay because my children are here um, and make a more uh, a decision that's in our best interest financially in the long run. And so often um, in divorce, uh, people are not told what the final settlement means for them, you know, in 10, 20, 30 years. This is probably very, very true. Um, how do we find a financial analyst for divorce? Well, the, um, uh, there is a, a group um, or an association that we all belong to, the Institute of Divorce Financial Analysts, the IDFA, and they will have a listing of uh, certified divorce financial analysts in your area. They they have them segregated according to states, and so you can find that CDFA who um, might be closest to you. Um, most of them will sit down with you on a complimentary basis in your you know in your first meeting, um, and we'll just discuss you know your circumstances as it you know might relate to your divorce, and also you know, give you a sense of, you know, their fee structure and how they operate so that you can make a decision whether this is the person that you feel comfortable working with. And by the way, you know, I always encourage people to talk to more than one CDFA, to talk to more than one attorney or mediator, um, and to really be clear about their own individual circumstances. For As an example, your caller who called in, there are um, specialists who work with uh, veterans, um, and understand veteran benefits and how they're treated in divorce very well. I'd look for that person. I'd, that'd be one of the questions I would ask. How much experience do you have with veterans? Um, if I were looking for a CDFA or an attorney or mediator. So if you need a divorce financial guidance, ask the person, are you a member of the Certified Divorce Financial Analyst Association? And if you are... It's, Go for it. Right. It is the IDFA, the Institute of Divorce Financial Analysts. So IDFA, if they Google IDFA, they'll find that association, <coughs> excuse me, and um, they'll be able to find a CDFA in their state and certainly in their area because uh, where that particular CDFA is located is detailed there. And I'd like to say thank you to my guest, Sally Boyle, 
author of Deconstructing Divorce. It's been an informative, enlightening, and delightful conversation. Thank you, Sally. Thank you very much for having me, Peter. My pleasure. And it's been another edition of Conversation here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. But before we go, get your calendars. I want to tell you about a cultural event you want to check out. Sunday, March 18th at 4 p.m., the Germantown Oratorio Choir will be performing at 35 West Chelton Avenue, um, a German Requiem and Alto Rhapsody. They are beautiful to listen to. They transport you to all kinds of places in your mind with great Brahms music. So consider going to see the Germantown Oratorio Choir and a whole lot more at the Germantown Requiem and Alto Rhapsody, Sunday, March 18th, 4 p.m. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon.